You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. As a 16-year-old Christian, I was excited to hear that a Broadway musical was gaining traction that was about Jesus Christ. I was so excited to hear that a Broadway musical would be on one of my favorite themes, Jesus Christ. And my excitement increased when I found out that our high school choir director decided that we as a choir would sing some songs from that rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar. But I remember that day, many years ago, I won't say quite how many, I remember that day many years ago as the music was passed out and I skimmed through the words. My heart sank. I I had a gut check. I had a serious gut check. When I skimmed through the music on my lap and I read words like this, being addressed to Jesus, every time I look at you, I don't understand why you would let the things you did get so out of hand. Did you mean to die like that? Was that a mistake? Or did you know your death would be a record breaker? In my youth, I swallowed my fear, and yes, I swallowed my pride, when I approached our choir director and I said, I can't sing this song. And I explained to him why, and thankfully he honored my young convictions and allowed me to stand silent as my fellow students sang that song in performances. Was I right? Was I right in making my quiet protest? Is it possible that Jesus' death on the cross was a result of things just getting out of hand? Is it possible that Jesus' death on the cross was merely a vindictive act by Jewish leaders and that Jesus was a sad victim of their frustration and anger. Was Jesus' death on the cross a mistake? Join me, please, in the Gospel of John, chapter 19. John chapter 19. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 16 through 27. John 19, beginning of verse 16. Verse 16 begins this way. So he, that would be Pilate, delivered him over to be crucified, so they took Jesus. I read that verse over and over and over, and what struck me is how simple it is, how straightforward it is. So he delivered him over to be crucified, so they took Jesus. Such a simple statement from the pen of the Apostle John, who was an eyewitness to these details. We're going to look at his account today. Remember that question I asked you just moments ago? Was Jesus' death a matter of things just getting out of hand there in Jerusalem? Was it a mistake? Let's see if we can find an answer to those questions as we read John 19. What I'm going to do today is I'm just going to read it section by section. We'll read a few verses, we'll stop and talk about it, read the next few verses, stop and talk about it, and so on. 
So we're going to begin by reading verses 16, 17, and 18, and I'm calling these verses simply Jesus and his cross. Let's back up and read the beginning of verse 16. It says, So he, Pilate, delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. And he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Jesus made a tortuous walk to Golgotha. The path from the Roman headquarters in Jerusalem to the place of execution outside the city walls would have been a circuitous route. The Romans wanted the citizens to see people die. They wanted to see people die. They, they crucified people by the road. They did that on purpose. And when a man was condemned to die, they would have that condemned person walk through the streets of Jerusalem, not a direct route, but a circuitous route to, to increase the number of people that could be horrified by what it means to defy Rome. Jesus began his journey. I can point to you here. This part of the city was called the Antonia Fortress. Here's the temple. Right outside the temple complex, the Romans built this fortress where they had their headquarters. And so Jesus would have had his last trial in this building somewhere, and then led by four Roman soldiers, probably with a centurion, uh, he would have been led through the streets of Jerusalem, uh, making a circular route, eventually coming out of a gate to outside the gate where he would be crucified. It was meant to horrify people. He probably, he, maybe around his neck, or possibly one of the Roman soldiers would carry a sign indicating his crime. That would be for everyone being crucified. Jesus would have been carrying what we know as the cross member to the cross. Now, I know that many artists depict him carrying the whole cross, both the upright and the cross member, but almost surely he carried the uh, cross member. Now, I'm going to embellish here somewhat with archaeological and historical things, but um, just so we understand, the Romans crucified many people. There would have been thousands, over time, there would have been thousands of people in Palestine crucified by the Romans. So they probably kept the upright posts there to be used over and over. And when someone was being crucified, they would have him carry the cross member from his place of judgment to the place of crucifixion. And Jesus would have had that happening to him. That cross member, much bigger than what we have symbolically behind me, uh, would have been anywhere from 30 to 100 pounds, depending on its length and its thickness. And Jesus carried his cross. John makes a point to say here in these verses that Jesus carried his own cross. He's making a point. Now, I'll say this probably a couple times this morning, but this passage we're looking at today is so straightforward. It feels like we can just read it in a matter of 90 seconds or so and move on. But John is telling us things. Uh, we want to slow down. We want to stop and think, why did the Holy Spirit move John to write those words that way? Is he, is he telling us something here? And so when I said that Jesus carried his own cross, he's making a point that Jesus died voluntarily. Jake alluded to this last week in his sermon. Jesus chose to die on our behalf. He carried his own cross. 
And as we see Jesus carrying his cross, it does remind us of an incident that would have happened over 2,000 years before this Friday morning in Jerusalem. Right there in that area, 2,000 years before, young Isaac, the promised son of Abraham, carried the wood for the sacrifice. When Abraham was asked by God to do a seemingly impossible task, would he sacrifice, in obedience to his God, would he sacrifice his son Isaac? And young Isaac was carrying the wood on the hill right next to where Jesus died, quite frankly. It was the same geographic area, 2,000 years separated. And as Isaac carried that wood up that hill, he asked his father, Father, Where's the wood? But where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice lamb, Dad? And do you remember what his father said? Do you remember what Abraham said to his son? Some of you do. He said, God himself, God himself will supply the lamb. And Abraham spoke prophetically, not even realizing maybe fully what he was saying. And as we see Jesus carrying the wood, as we see Jesus carrying the cross, our minds go back not only to Abraham, but our minds go to an event just a few years before this where John the Baptist said, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That here is the Lamb that God provided. Here is the Lamb provided by God who takes away the sin of the world. Luke does record for us a detail that John chooses to not record. And that was that Jesus, even though he probably was quite strong, having worked as a contractor, a carpenter, had been beaten the hours preceding his crucifixion, probably within an inch of his life. If you follow the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, each of them, by the Holy Spirit's direction, adds different details. And we're focusing on John, but I'll allude to some that others wrote as well. If you remember that night before the cross, Jesus hadn't slept. You know how tired you get if you pull an all-nighter? Jesus not only had an all-nighter, but it was full of stress. I mean, he went through a series of kangaroo courts, back and forth, one location to another, he had been mocked and beaten, hidden with people's fists, sticks, had a crown of thorns on his head. And a couple of beatings, one less severe, but the one right before the crucifixion, after the execution had been announced, would have been extremely severe. It is quite, I don't want to gross anybody out here, but it is quite likely that Jesus had been beaten so badly that some of his bones would have been showing, some of his muscles would have been exposed maybe even some of his internal organs. He was beaten within an inch of his life. Josephus, other writers from this era, tell us that some people who had been sentenced to execution did not survive the beating. They, ne they never made it to their cross. It was that bad. And here is Jesus now, having been beaten within an inch of his life, carrying a heavy cross member through the streets of Jerusalem. Apparently about the time he got to the gate, he fell and the Romans commandeered a, a man from North Africa, probably there in Jerusalem for the Passover, and they made him carry the cross the last distance. 
Eventually, this gruesome parade made its way out of the city walls. John records for us in verse 17. Look at verse 17 with me. It says simply at the beginning, and he went out. Now, I I don't want to read things there that aren't there, but I think it's there on purpose. When John says he went out, it reminds us of the Old Testament. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, verse 27, and a couple of other places, it says whenever a sacrifice was made for sin, then that sacrifice was carried outside the gate. It says that that sacrifice for sins was taken outside the gate. And so when John, by the Spirit, chooses his wording here and says, so he went out, I think there's an allusion to that. Now I'll tell you why I say that with a measure of confidence. It's because of the Word of God itself. In the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, we read these words. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. And then the author of Hebrews, alluding to that, says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And even through the choice of a preposition, so he went out. John's telling us something about Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross wasn't a mistake. It wasn't things getting out of hand. It was a predetermined, by God, sacrifice for sins. And so now Jesus is brought to be crucified to the place of the skull. There's been lots of speculation. Why was it called the place of the skull? But we don't know, so I spend a lot of time on that. (laughs) But John refers to it here by the name Golgotha, which is Aramaic. Aramaic, by the way, was the language that Jesus and a lot of people spoke in Palestine at that time. It's not exactly Hebrew, but it's pretty close. So they would have spoken Aramaic, and the Aramaic word for this place was called Golgotha. We're used to the word Calvary, aren't we? We sing it in our songs. We sometimes memorize it in verses, Calvary. They mean the exact same thing. Calvary is based on the Latin. Golgotha is based on Aramaic. But they mean exactly the same thing, skull. It's the place of the skull. Now, you can see here in this drawing, artist drawing, uh, that someone has said maybe it was right here. Quite frankly, that's probably pretty close. Um, Here's right outside the gate. Uh, Near the road was a place that people were crucified. There's a garden nearby with tombs in there. That might be Joseph of Arimathea's tomb over there. Um, By the way, I know not all of you are history buffs like I am, but if you see photos even today of Jewish people praying at the Western Wall, sometimes referred to the Wailing Wall, that's right here. That's about the only part of this surviving today is this section right over here. But this is what it would have looked like probably pretty close when Jesus was crucified, and he was crucified outside the gate at a place called the skull. And there it says that Jesus was crucified. Uh, We sang a song a few minutes ago about Jesus being pierced. Uh, How did the Jewish, when the Jewish people were allowed to use capital punishment, when Jewish people were allowed to execute someone, how did the Jewish people do it? Stoning. They would throw rocks, big rocks at a person until that person was dead. But the prophecy was made back in Psalm 22 that the Savior would be pierced. 
And so isn't it fascinating, God's providence, that Jesus would die under the Romans when their means of execution was crucifixion, which involved piercing, piercing of the hands and the feet. Jesus would have been laying down on the ground with his arms spread over that cross member and his hands, his wrists would have been nailed to that cross. It would have been hoisted up on the vertical beam and his feet would have been pierced with a large nail or two nails possibly. He would have been nailed to the cross. Now, please understand that crucifixions were designed by diabolical minds. Crucifixions were designed to make death as gruesome, as tortuous as possible. It was made to cause the condemned person to linger, to die a painful, slow death. There are records of people hanging on crosses sometimes for two or three days. What a slow, torturous death. And every time he wanted to breathe hanging on the cross, he'd have to push up because all the weight hanging on his arms, he would not be able to inhale. And so in order to inhale, there had to be a relieving of that weight. And so he'd have to push up on those nail-pierced feet just to be able to suck in air for one more breath and one more breath, and one more breath, and one more breath, and one more breath, for hours and hours and sometimes days. It, it was a diabolical way to die. The physical pain would have been worse than what any of us have ever experienced. I think I can say that with confidence. In fact, someone has speculated that the only people that could even understand a tiny little bit the, the pain that Jesus suffered would be people who were already in hell. People already in hell, knowing the torture of hell, might have a little taste of what Jesus experienced. But even they, even they, would not fully understand the depth of the agony because of the contrast. Jesus knew in eternity past the perfect love of his Father. Jesus knew in eternity past, eternity past the, the bliss of glory. And now as he hung on that cross, it was not merely the physical agony. But Jesus experienced a soul agony that, that goes beyond anything we can fathom. When, as we'll hear later in this passage, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he knew that soul-wrenching agony of the Father who had loved him so perfectly, now turning his face away. It says here in John 19 that Jesus was crucified between two people, two men. John does not embellish. The other gospel writers tell us that they were criminals. In fact, one word that's used of them seems to imply they were insurrectionists. They were terrorists. Quite possibly friends of Barabbas himself. And you have to wonder, did Pilate do it that way in order to uh, mock Jesus? That he had... Jesus is supposed king of the Jews, sacrificed between two insurrectionists. Isaiah 53, we've already read some of Isaiah 53 today. Isaiah 53, 12 says, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors. That prophecy was 700 years old when Jesus died on the cross. But when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled that prophecy that he would die with sinners. He would die alongside sinners and 
And it seems so unfair, doesn't it? Why would this sinless man, why would this teacher and doer of good die with a couple of despicable criminals? And yet one of the slanders against Jesus that we own and gladly own is Jesus. What a friend of sinners. Jesus had always been a friend of sinners. And as we see Jesus dying between two criminals, two sinners, we, we're actually encouraged by that, aren't we? Because Romans 5 teaches us that he died for us while we were still sinners. He died for us. Let's read some more verses, 19 through 22. It says here, teaches us about Jesus and the sign over his head. Verse 19 says, Pilate also read an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. <coughs> and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So all criminals, or as far as we know, all criminals had a sign indicating what their crime was for which they were being executed. Jesus' crime was he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate had this written in three different languages, Aramaic, which would have been the language of Palestine, in Latin, which would have been the language of Rome, and in Greek, which would have been like the trade language all across the Mediterranean. We, we need to appreciate God's providence here, that God, in his superintendence of this whole scene, is making sure that everybody, no matter what your ethnic, ethnic background, no matter what your mother tongue is, that you would know who this is. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. That Jesus is not only the king of Jews, though, but these other languages remind us, even what Jesus himself said, that I have other sheep that are not of this fold. The same John that wrote the Gospel of John wrote the book of Revelation. And he records for us in that book, the book of Revelation, that as an old man, he was allowed to have a glimpse of eternity. And in that glorious scene recorded in Revelation 5, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The chief priests protested, didn't they? They saw that sign over Jesus' cross and they said, we don't like that. We don't like him being called king of the Jews. And so they protested to Pilate, change the sign. Change it from king of the Jews to he said he was king of the Jews. You know, I have to imagine that Pilate worded it that way to take a jab at the Jewish leaders themselves. The Jewish leaders had manipulated Pilate politically to have Jesus turned over for execution. Pilate seems like he wanted to release Jesus. He couldn't find an execution-worthy crime. He could not find Jesus guilty of an execution-worthy crime. And so he kept saying, I don't find any fault in this man. And the Jews said, if you don't crucify him, you're no friend of Caesar's. And they used political pressure to get Pilate to do what they wanted. And it seems to me like Pilate says, you've pushed me far enough. You're not going to push me any farther. And so he says, what I've written, I've written. 
And so Pilate's showing his pride right now, but interestingly, God's using this. He's using this for his glory too, isn't he? That Jesus really is the king of the Jews. He really is. And even as he hung on that cross, his glory is seen. Remember that? In John 17, Father, glorify me. That even hanging on the cross, it's as if the cross itself was the throne of Jesus Christ. And one day, we will see Jesus in all of his glory. Each of us will see him in all of his glory, and every knee shall bow. And I realize this is my imagination, but I think about that day that Pilate stood with Jesus in front of him and just kept quizzing him and disbelief, disbelief. Even as Jake preached last week, Pilate saying, don't you realize I have authority over you? And Jesus said, you wouldn't have any authority if it hadn't been given to you from above. And do you realize that one day that same Pilate will stand in front of Jesus and it'll be the great role reversal when Jesus himself will be seen as the one who has the power of life and death. And Pilate will give an account. But you know, before we point our finger and wave it at Pilate, we need to realize that you and I will also stand before that Lord Jesus, King Jesus, one day. What will you say to him on that day? Or more importantly, what will he say to you? Let's read the next section. Verses 23 and 24, I'm calling this section simply Jesus and his clothes. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven woven in one piece from top to bottom. (coughs) So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. There's part of the story that's not often preached and not often thought about. Jesus died naked. The Romans intended it that way. They crucified people naked. It was part of the shame. Crucifixions were designed not only to be painful, but to be shameful. And when I think about shame, our minds go back to Adam and Eve, our our first ancestors, where when they sinned, when they rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, pitifully, they tried to cover their shame with fig leaves. But at the cross, Jesus bore our shame for us. Fellow Christian, listen to me. If you have been saved by Jesus Christ, there is no longer any need for you to live in shame. We, we, live, we live in a world where people say, shame on you, shame on you. And some of you have these ugly memories of people saying that to you, implying that to you, shame on you. But do you remember part, part of the gospel message is this, my friends, shame off you, shame off you. Because your shame, the shame of the sins that you committed, were placed on Jesus Christ. The shadow of the shame of the sins committed against you are covered in the blood of Christ as well. And now, my fellow Christian, you and I, 
do not need to live with shame any longer that Jesus Christ in his nakedness on the cross bore our shame in our place. And that hymn keeps coming to my mind, my sin, not in part, not in part, but the whole is nailed to that cross and I, I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh my John Calvin wrote many years ago, Christ was stripped of his garments that he might clothe us with righteousness. His naked body was exposed to the insults of men that we may appear in glory with the judge, before the judgment seat of God. Paul told the Galatians, for our sake, for our sake, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so as Jesus, as it were, clothed himself in our shame, he clothed us with his righteousness. And when you and I stand before the throne of the holy God of the universe, we will not stand before him, fellow Christians, we will not stand before him with shame, but we will stand before him with boldness and joy. Not because we are good people, because we're not but because Jesus Christ has taken our shame and he has given us his righteousness. There's an old hymn, almost 300 years old, by the Moravian missionary Count von Zinzendorf. He says, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty my glorious dress, my glorious clothing. Midst flaming words and these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in that great day. For who out to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear and guilt and shame. Shame off you. Shame off you, fellow Christians. Christ bore your shame that day and has clothed you with his righteousness. Back in John 19, verses 23 and 24, the incidents that we see according to John's eyewitness account here is that the, uh, the four Roman soldiers that carried out the execution, the crucifixion, as was their normal custom, no doubt, divided the clothes of the condemned man. Here he was still living, hanging on that cross, but they were treating him as if he were already dead. And they divided four items of clothing. Probably, if Jesus was dressed like most people back then, there was some sort of hat, some sort of headdress. There would have been a belt. There would have been sandals and a robe. And so they quite likely cast lots for each of those. Who gets the belt? Who gets the headdress? Who gets the sandals? Who gets the robe? But there was this fifth article of clothing. What are they going to do with that? The tunic, the inner garment. By the way, we have a hard time imagining what's going on here because we live in a culture where clothing, quite frankly, is cheap. But you realize before mechanical looms, clothing would have been labor-intensive. Every thread in a garment would have been placed there by hand. Uh, clothing, cloth, would have been extremely expensive. It would have taken hours and hours to make an article of clothing. 
And uh, so as these four soldiers looked at the fifth item, uh, it was pretty special. It was seamless. Uh, they could tear it. They could say, well, there's four of us. Let's just rip it in four parts. But they said, why waste such a nice piece of clothing? Let's cast lots and see who gets this fifth item, this tunic, this inner garment. And you say, well, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. But do you, see what, do you see what is happening here? John says this was to fulfill Scripture. And he's alluding back to a prophecy in the Psalms within a thousand years before Jesus died on the cross. Psalm 22. Psalm 22. It's a thousand years old by the time Jesus died on the cross. But John says that was there in, John, in Psalm 22 because it was pointing forward to this day. And he quotes it right here for us, doesn't he? He quotes it right here for us. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Well, what, are we, what are we seeing here? Do you think these Roman soldiers said, oh, guys, don't forget Psalm 22. We've got to cast lots for the clothing. I don't think these Roman soldiers knew or even cared about the Hebrew Scriptures. But God did. He put it there on purpose. Peter would later write in 1 Peter chapter 1, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. Huh. So even the psalmist in Psalm 22, or Isaiah, Isaiah 52 and 53, all these prophecies, the people that wrote them, had just bare shadow to look at about the coming Messiah, the coming Christ. And they knew from these hints that the suffering Savior was coming. But Peter says that was all written for us in this New Testament era. One more section that we're going to look at here is verses 25 through 27. Jesus and his mother. Jesus and his mother, verses 25, 26, 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother... And his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. There might have been other people at the foot of the cross. In fact, it seems from other gospel writers there were others besides these. But these are particularized. These are specified, named. There is this disciple whom Jesus loved. If you read the Gospel of John, it's pretty obvious who that is. It's John. He never names himself. He alludes to himself in the Gospel as the disciple Jesus loved. What a wonderful, what a wonderful moniker. <laughs> he called himself the disciple Jesus loved. And so of the 12 apostles, 12 disciples, Judas is already dead. Ten are hiding out somewhere. It seems that John is the only one who was at the foot of the cross. The only one of the 12 was John at the foot of the cross. But along with John, uh, John mentions four ladies. Interestingly, three of them are named Mary. Must have been a pretty popular name back then. <laughs> there was Mary, the mother of Jesus. There was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the wife of Clopas. And then there's this fourth lady, unnamed. But she's called Mary, the mother of Jesus' sister. If you read the other gospel accounts, she's given a name. She's called Salome. And she's also called the wife of Zebedee, who was the father of James and John. 
So if you're following the family tree there, it's quite likely that the Apostle John and Jesus were first cousins. That uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was John's aunt. Um, So Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he looks down, and he sees his mother. Now, you ladies that are here who have born children, I think your heart goes out to Mary, doesn't it? That she's watching her son suffer. The son she bore. The son she raised. She's watching him, innocent son that he is, she's watching him die a horrible death on the cross. And you have to wonder, did those words from Simeon 33 years before in the temple, when they dedicated Jesus as an infant in the temple, an old man named Simeon came up to Mary and Joseph and he said to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul. A young mom, probably a teenager at that point, a young mom hearing those words from that old man, a sword will pierce your soul. Did those words come back to Mary that day? We can only wonder. But did she remember the words of old Simeon that day? He's the sword of seeing her son suffer. And Jesus sees his mother at the foot of the cross. And Think about this, friends. Think about it. Jesus is in agony. He's in, he's in agony. But even in his agony, he's concerned for someone else. He's concerned, in this case, for his mother, Mary. She's almost likely a widow by this point. Joseph would have died sometime previous to this account Jesus' brothers, half-brothers, were not yet believers. And in that culture, widows would have had it tough. They would have needed a man to care for them, to provide for them. And Jesus knows that he's about to die and in a matter of weeks will ascend to heaven. And so he has compassion on his mother and he entrusts her to his disciple John, the disciple that he loved. He says, woman, here's your son. Son, here's your mother. And he entrusts her to that, to the care of John. Now, think with me about this. Jesus is in his moment of agony. He's in his moment of weakness. And yet he has the power, the desire to care for Mary. I think sometimes when we go through difficult times, when there's a sword piercing our souls, we think, Does Jesus care about me? Can Jesus deal with my issues? And I think Jesus is now glorified. Jesus is now ascended to heaven. He has all authority and power. And if he could care for his mother in his moment of agony, can he not care for you and me in this era of his glorification, this era of his ascension and power? What did Paul call it? He said, out of the riches of glory. He cares for us out of the riches of glory that he can care for you and me. So friends, cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now that we've walked through this passage, let me just take three or four minutes and talk about you and me. Jesus and you and me. What's the takeaway for us? This is a very straightforward narrative, a very straightforward recording of what happened when Jesus died on the cross. But I've tried to show you that we need to read this passage carefully, realizing there's, there's John is writing this in a way that makes us think about some things. Let's not miss the obvious. The centrality of the cross of Christ. 
Now, I realize I could come across as a grouchy old preacher. <laughs> Maybe I am. But I grieve when I see what's happening in our Western Christianity. That we're living in a religious context that is increasingly Christless and crossless. There are plenty of places you can go today and hear religious sermons, and yet you hear them and you wonder, where is Christ in all that? Where is the cross in all of that? And we need to, we need to keep our feet planted on this, that the cross of Christ is central to the gospel message. We're not the first generation to face this problem. The Apostle Paul said it to the Corinthians in his first letter. He said, you know, Jews want to see signs. Greeks want to see wisdom. In other words, he's implying the cross of Jesus Christ isn't the most popular message. The cross of Jesus Christ is what people are clamoring for. But he said, nevertheless, despite its unpopularity in our culture, Paul says, we preach Christ and him crucified. The power of God and the wisdom of God. Because Paul is convinced that God would use the preaching of the cross of Christ in the salvation of souls. It is the wisdom and power of God. Let the Holy Spirit have his way, and he will have his way with the preaching of Christ and him crucified. And so we here in our local church need to realize, even though it's not popular, we need to stand firmly on the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ. But two other things I think are takeaways here. One is that the death of Jesus Christ was voluntary, and the second, third I might say, is the death of Jesus Christ was planned. That question I had as a 16-year-old, was the death of Jesus Christ simply things getting out of hand? Was it a mistake? And the answer is, no. It was all planned. All planned by God. The God planned in all eternity past that he would redeem his people through the crucifixion of his innocent son, Jesus. It was all planned. Jesus is called in the scriptures the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He was foreknown. Now Jesus was part of the making of that plan in heaven. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, was part of the planning of the whole work of redemption. Jesus knew why he was coming. He knew what would happen to him. And yet he came. The death of Jesus Christ was planned and it was voluntary. Now, if you just park on that for a while, that should stir not only our minds, but our hearts to say, oh, what grace, oh, what love, that he would come and redeem an ill-deserving sinner like me through his death on the cross. We ought never walk away from the shadow of the cross, but to stand and wander beneath the cross of Jesus. Amazed at his grace. For those of you here today that are not yet believers, I want to remind you of something that John, the same gospel writer, wrote at the beginning of his account. He said, to all who receive him, Jesus, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So I ask you simply today, what's holding you back? What's holding you back from Christ? He's the Savior. He's the only Savior. Will you come to him today? Let me pray.